This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. And welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear Rosianna and John. It's a podcast where two brothers, or in this case, two producing partners, answer your questions, provide you with dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. I said last week, my one-man band episode, the hardest hour of my life. I felt like I was... I, that was, there was a lot of tap dancing. That's what I would say about that episode. I said last week, Hank will be back next week. And not only is that not true, friends, although I'm very happy to have Rosiana here, not only is that not true, I won't be here next week. And so... (laughs) Like ships passing in the night. We're never going to... It's never going to be Dear Hank and John again. This situation is... It's a very challenging time. And it's not because Hank and I are having a secret fight. It's entirely because of logistics and scheduling. Rosiana... How are you? I'm well, thank you. But now I do want people to come up with an intense feud yes. and start making videos about the drama. Right. And uh, and yes. then maybe that will like hype up the podcast even further. Right. And people will be listening back to old episodes to find out secret clues to the feud and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll, yeah. they'll find out how ang- secretly angry we've always been at each other. Yeah. I love that idea. We'll, we'll be on a Keemstar episode. Phil, Phil, Philly, Philly DeFranco will have to cover our... <laughs> Our, our, our battle. <laughs> I'm excited. It'll be like Oasis, but in the YouTube era. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Should I be the Liam or the Noel? A question we all have to ask ourselves at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, Hank and I are not having a secret feud, despite the reports that you've heard on mm-hmm. Twitter. 
But uh, what is happening is that the Turtles All the Way Down movie is about to start filming. Oh, I'm so excited about it. I can't believe it's happening. It's been, what, four four years in the wait four at least? Four and a half years of waiting. Oh, I mean, it just, <laughs> I keep getting nervous even talking about it because I remember the last time it was April and I was excited about, no, it wasn't even April yet. Last time it was March and I was excited about the Turtles All the Way Down film being uh, made and then uh, it was 2020. Yeah. So there have been a lot of uh, a lot of hurdles to jump over. Turtle hurdles. Turtle hurdles. <laughs> um, it's almost been hurdles all the way down with with trying to get these turtles made. But we are at last very at this point. I mean, it's weird because I still am. I don't want to jinx it because Rosiana. So for those who don't know, Rosiana and I have worked together for how long? Like almost ten years. Almost ten years. Yeah. But we've known each other since two thousand seven. Yeah. So. Um, we've, we've known each other for a long time. We've worked together for a long time and we've had one or two movie projects really fail at the last second. Yeah. So you never know in Hollywood. There were definitely points where I thought, uh, surely they would not pull this at this point. And they just do. And they did. Yeah. So that's, that has never happened with the Turtles movie. No. With the Turtles movie, it's just been... A, it, it, the the script, in my opinion, has always been really, really beautiful. Isaac and Elizabeth, who wrote the script, just did an amazing job. I think, you know, if, if you think that the book does a good job of representing OCD, and I, and I hope that you do, I certainly think the script does. Um, and, I, and I know that the people who are involved in the movie, from the director, Hannah Marks, to the star... Uh, Isabella Merced, they all take it very seriously and understand the the job. Um, and I think Rosiana is, has done an amazing job of getting this project, keeping it going. Oh, and here you. we are, finally, here almost. We are. Well, and also, this is the first time I've seen you, John, for two years and a bit. Yeah. Two years and three months. Yeah. Um, so that's been really nice as well. And yeah, yeah to have this project be... On its slow and steady wins the race way. <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen. Um, yeah. So I'm very excited, uh, but it does mean that over the next eight weeks, my presence on the podcast will be a little bit in and out due to being on the set of the movie, which is very exciting, but not conducive to podcasting. You know, one <laughs> thing they really don't like when you're on a movie set is when you uh, talk loud and laugh at your brother's jokes. <laughs> and you say, hi, do you have a room full of egg foam and other things? <laughs> uh, right, yeah. One time, uh, there have only been a couple times when I when I really ruined a movie shot in my oh, no. career as a guy who walks around movie sets eating Cheetos pretending to help. And one of them was truly epic. I was eating Cheetos and walking yeah. while like on a on a wireless headphone thing during the Fault in Our Stars movie. And I'm just like munching on the Cheetos and I think I was talking to Sarah. Oh no. And I walked right through the shot. So you can see me, they showed it to me afterwards. <laughs> You could see, like, there's Hazel and Gus oh, having this intense moment. And then in the background, there's this, there's this guy with bad posture walking along, oh my munching gosh. on some Cheetos. And then the other time I ruined a shot was just my audio um, was when AFC Wimbledon drew Liverpool in the third round of the <laughs> FA Cup. And I said, um, uh, are, are you crapping me? Yeah. Um, but not in those exact words. Yeah. And the director, Jake Schreier, turned around to me and he was like, you can't talk in the middle of the shot. <laughs> so anyway, that's I some do, of them. You recounting that Fault in Our Stars story about the Cheetos, though, does remind me how many times we would be talking through something that we need to figure out. 
Um, and you'd be like, wait, I'm just approaching the set. I'll turn around. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. So many times. Yeah, it happens a lot because I'm a pacer. Yeah, you were But pacing. I have to make sure that I don't ac- accidentally pace my way into the frame. But that's what we know now, that we're down, we're down the line now. Yeah, yeah. So who knows what joys await the cast and crew of Turtles All the Way Down. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that I'll be just an absolute delight to have on set. I've heard so many author horror stories over the years, which of course I can't repeat, from members of the, the crews of the movie. Movies I've I've been part of, and I, I'm sure that they I have the horror stories too that they tell about me, but I don't know them because they, they don't they, they don't tell them to me. But there's this one person I'm not going to say his name, but apparently like he would show up to set every single day in a Rolls Royce, <gasps> which isn't the uncomfortable part. The uncomfortable part is that apparently he had a, a vanity license plate. That said, number one writer. No. Yeah, but with no uh, with no I and E, like with no vowels, so that oh. it could all fit number one writer. So like number one writer. Right, number Ritter. one writer. Yeah, you thought it was writer sport, but it's me. <laughs> I'm the number one. <laughs> <laughs> like, I I feel like that's a bad call. Yeah, I mean, unless although- unless you're like I don't know. I guess if you're Toni Morrison, you can pull up to set with it. Vanity license plate that says number one writer, but like surely you know you're not the number one. Yeah, it's it's very bold. It reminds me, I was in Vegas a couple a uh, couple days ago for a couple of days, and I uh, got into a lift that had the number plate that was like J Lo nine nine nine, and I was like, mm. that is a very good Vegas number plate. Someone thought about their demographic. Their gam- demographic is people who use Lyft in Vegas. And uh, yeah, that was that was smart. I liked it. Also, it had sparkly. It had one of these little frames around it. Oh, little sparkly frames. I love those. Yeah, it was pretty fun. I love a sparkly frame. Yeah. I kind of feel like I should get a sparkly frame for my car. Yeah. Like a, well, because I will be driving to the set a lot. <laughs> so maybe I should get a vanity license plate in a sparkly frame. <laughs> oh, maybe it could be like number two, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just, just, just go just with one it. spot behind that guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to answer some questions from our listeners, uh, beginning with this one from Amanda, who writes, Dear John and Hank, when you're reading a fictional book, do you picture the story taking place in locations you've actually been? Like, for example, my mind almost always conjures up the layout of my childhood best friend's house for a protagonist. I'll often be halfway through a book when I realize in passing, oh, we're in Kelsey's house again, or my middle school library, or the park by my current house, or one of my college dorm rooms, but never the other. Maybe my brain just isn't creative enough to invent a setting on its own, but I'm curious if other people do this too. Well, that's interesting. I I sort of think about it now that I'm um, thinking about it directly, almost like the thing in Inception where you use pieces from yeah. all the stuff you know yeah. and you fuse it together in some kind of amalgam. Right. Um, but I don't know that I, I don't actually think that visually, to be honest. Like when I'm reading, I think more in this sort of vague abstract thing that's somewhere between words and pictures. Yeah, yeah. I have almost no visual imagination. And in fact, in the little moments when I do picture something when I'm reading, it's always like a, a, a shock to me. It's always like a moment of genius on the part of the author. Yeah. Uh, I feel like, like I, I can, because I can list them. I can list the number of times I've been like, oh, I see it. Like the very beginning of Toni Morrison's Beloved, I see. Uh, there's a moment in Ted, a Ted Chang story where uh, it's you've read the story, Rosiana, because you read yeah. it for Life's Library. It's that it's that one about the 
the the the spire that goes all the way up. Oh yeah, the Tower of Babylon story. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had a moment when he's like yeah. rounding one part of that where I suddenly saw it, and I was like, oh wow, that's miraculous. Or I was just reading this. John Le Carré novel, and there's a part where I suddenly was able to picture a banister on a on a stairwell, and those moments are always really shocking to me because I have so little visual imagination. So I kind of like the idea of filling in the parts that you can't see with places that you can see and do remember. Yeah, yeah, and I think I've um, spoken about this even on the podcast before, actually. But I, the one thing I do always put my own interpretation in is everyone's uh, narration is in an English accent. Oh, really? Yeah, pretty oh. much. Even when I know that they're American, like I would yeah. read Sweet Valley High growing up and it would be English accents. <laughs> and so those times I find it difficult sometimes when I'm listening to audiobooks and they have like a narrator, if it's got like a very strong American accent. Um, but then often in film adaptations, I'm like, hang on. That yeah. person's British. Why are they? Why are they talking so weird? <laughs> why are you talking so strangely? Why is this Babysitters Club moment taking place seemingly in Connecticut of all places? <laughs> yeah, come on, it's clearly in Buckingham Palace. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. But the the visual element of it is really interesting. It's like places you know. I think I, I'm more likely to get that um, probably with short stories than with mm. with anything else. Mm. Yeah, I love the idea though because. It, it brings home the extent to which all writing really is a collaboration between the reader and the writer. It really is like there's this space that the that the words create that then the reader fills in. Mm. Um, and and that really brings home the extent of the collaboration when you're like, oh, I'm at Kelsey's house. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask a next question, which comes from Grace, who says, Dear John and Hank, I'm trying to sit at my desk and write, but there's this downy woodpecker on a tree outside my window. It keeps pooping. It's been there under 15 minutes, and I've seen it poop three times. And I've only been looking out the window every few minutes, so it's safe to bet it's pooped many more. Oh, look, it just pooped again. Is this normal? Do birds poop more than every five minutes? Why? Writing this email instead of working on my book? Grace. So, Grace, we have a lot of downy woodpeckers here in Indianapolis, and not only do we have a lot of them, there are a lot of them constantly trying to break into my home. Oh, God. So, in fact, there's a pretty good chance that during the recording of this podcast, or at least some episodes of this podcast, you will occasionally hear the sound of a woodpecker pecking uh, against my bedroom wall, because that's where I record the podcast. And it's very loud, and it's very insistent. And my initial idea was, well, what if I knock back? <laughs> and this was was a catastrophe because what that communicated, I think, this is my, my, my working theory, I am worried that I communicated to the woodpecker, hello, there is another one of you inside that yeah. you can't get to. <laughs> I have managed what you have so far failed exactly. to do. Exactly. Now you know it's possible. Yeah. So um, I spend a lot of time looking at woodpeckers, not least because I'm always like screaming at them to stop eating my house. <laughs> and I have also experienced this, that they poop a lot. I have not seen one that poops more than every five minutes. According to my research, it's quite normal for smallish birds, and downy woodpeckers are fairly small, to poop every 10 or 15 minutes. If this bird is pooping every minute or every 30 seconds, I think it might have an issue. I mean, it might have just had a lot of yogurt that day. It could have, you know, and or maybe it's been blocked up and it's like, fine, oh. <laughs> we don't know the story. But the, the point is that it is 
small birds do poop a lot and they poop relatively small amounts. Well, because they eat a lot, right? Because they need to use a lot of energy every time they take flight. Yeah, they're very, they're energy intensive creatures. Especially if they're pecking. They're trying to yeah. perform a pecking heist. Yes, indeed. I mean, this th- we've got a bird here that's trying to destroy a whole house. So it's an ambitious bird. It needs to do a lot of consuming of my home and then pooping out my home. I love this idea that it just thinks there's a giant woodpecker inside who's already managed yeah. to get in. Yeah, that's what I did to it. it before, <laughs> it's been a much worse problem since I tried the knocking strategy. So my new strategy is actually just to kind of run at the wall mm. and make one loud thud. And that does discourage it, at least for a moment. It just, you know, turns around for a bit and says, I'll wait for the woodpecker to take a break. (laughs) (laughs) I'll come back in a bit. I'll come back later. (laughs) He seems stressed. He seems stressed out. (laughs) (laughs) Let's give Woody some space. Indeed. Clay writes, Dear John and Hank, I currently have the spicy cough. What is that? (laughs) I think it might be COVID. Is it really? The spicy cough. Spicy cough is COVID? No way. It's Austra- it appears to be Australian slang for COVID. Yeah. I think we should adopt it, y'all. I think it's time to start calling COVID the spicy the cough. The spicy cough. <laughs> I currently have the spicy cough, and I've been frustrated with not being able to do my usual schoolwork. That is, until a friend pointed out that I have a virus in my body that's trying to stop me from doing work. And this made me wonder, what are the virus's intentions? What does it want? And why does that involve a stuffy nose and a sore throat? Not quite a rock. Clay. Oof, going straight for the deep ones. What does COVID want, Rosiana? It wants to live, doesn't it? It wants to exist. And it doesn't know why it wants to exist. And Clay, I don't want to hit you with the hard stuff, but I'm not sure you do either. Yeah. Like, why? This is the weird, this is one of, to me, one of the great paradoxes of life. The only way life can be is by wanting very badly to be. Yes. Right? Like, it is way more work than not life. Yes. But but why? Why does life want to be? This is something I explored in the Anthropocene Reviewed in the essay about Staphylococcus aureus. Like, staph doesn't want to take over a human body. Like, that's not the right way to think about will. And this is also something, by the way, that's explored in Turtles all the way down. Like, what exactly do we mean when we talk about free will? What mm-hmm. do we mean when we talk about uh, what we want and trying to achieve what we want Um, because there's a lot of will that we don't understand or that lives underneath the surface and goes kind of unexamined. And I think for staff or for COVID, all of it goes unexamined. Yeah. Well, it's quite, it's an interesting one because actually we get a lot of questions in the Dear Hank and John inbox because I like have a look through um, those questions and um, many of them are, why does this do this? What is the mm-hmm. purpose of this? Mm-hmm. What is the mm-hmm. evolutionary advantage? And I think it really speaks to the extent to which we feel like we can know everything about uh, the world in which we, we live or we want to because we're curious. Yeah. But I think that, yeah, as you say, like it, it comes back to, <laughs> well, maybe that's not quite the question. Maybe will is too broad a term or too complicated a term yeah. to actually be the one. Yeah, because um, I don't think that COVID or any other virus wants an outcome in the way that, like, I want a sandwich. Yeah. But then again, like, if I really examine what me wanting a sandwich is about, it is also pretty complicated. Have I, have I ever told you my favorite joke? Mm-hmm. So a moth walks into a podiatrist's <laughs> office. Oh, God. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, the podiatrist says, what seems to be the problem, Moth? And the Moth says, oh, God, Doc, if only there were just one problem. <laughs> Hopefully this is happening. I can't. I, I, uh, I've been suffering from this uh, horrible labyrinthitis for the last several weeks. Uh, one of my little mouth, one of my little uh, moth tooth tooths hurts a lot. And um, honestly, Doc, like sometimes I look in the mirror and I just think, like, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't even know why I'm going on. Do I want what I want? Or is there some deeper imperative that I haven't examined that wants what I want? And the podiatrist says, podiatrist is a doctor who works on feet, Rosiana. Mm. The podiatrist says, um, <laughs> those are all very serious problems, Moth. I'm sorry to hear about it, but I'm a podiatrist. What, what brought you to my office today? And the moth says, get ready for it. Oh, the light was on. Wow, I did not see that coming. <laughs> But, all right, everyone, whoever had Moth Joke on their bingo cards for this episode, cash in your checks. But what I love about the Moth Joke, <laughs> but what I love about the Moth Joke is that it answers your question. Like, why does COVID do the horrible things that it does? Why does staff grow without ceasing inside a human body? Like, you, you're telling me that I could have stopped this whole pandemic if I'd gone inside my body and turned the light off? You could have just turned the light I off. You could have just turned the light off. You could have just said, like, let's say, hey, everybody, let's stop flying where the light is on and think about why we are flying to where the light is on. Oh, let's but conserve we, electricity. But we can't do that. It gets, it gets real deep. It gets real recursive. So recursive, in fact. That if you wrote a book about it, I think you'd almost have to call it Turtles All the Way Down. As a... <laughs> I can't believe you told the moth joke. Just... I had to. Oh, it, was I had a, to. it was a prime moment. Um, so I think the main conclusion is the spicy cough wants from you what you want from the world. And that is, we don't know. There you go. I love it. Um, the next question we have for you is from Angie, who says, Dear Hank and John, help, I discovered an anthill in my office at work. Oh, I, no. I do not work in an outdoor office. Mm, good to know. What do I do? How do I tell my boss I can never work in that office again? Do I request to work out from home forever? <laughs> I am terrified of ants. They ate my clothes when I was little. I work in a mental health facility, not a therapist. Would they understand this fear? I feel like they are crawling all over me. How long has it been there? What if I accidentally bring them home? How do I ensure they're dead forever? I don't own a home repair website, Angie. So uh, there are a few things that we need to break down here. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to begin with, I mean, first off, it's okay to be terrified of ants. I'm terrified of mice and I have a lot of dreams about there being mice in my, my house. Mm. And when there was a mouse in my home when we lived in New York, it was a level one emergency every single day mm -hmm. until we were absolutely sure that the home had been fully mouse proofed. And I was I was very much on the Angie level of like, we need to move. Yeah. We need to cede this house to the mouse. Yeah. It no longer belongs to us, etc. But I think the thing that we need to break down first, Rosiana, is the following sentence. I am terrified of ants. They ate my clothes when I was little. I know. I just can't. I mean, how many of them were there? And what, how how small were your clothes? Yeah. What what kind of ants were these? I've never known an oh, ant that true. ate clothes. Is there a chance you are Hansel and or Gretel? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, <laughs> are we totally sure that Angie lives in our world? Or might Angie live in a world where ants are much more dangerous and eat your clothes? Oh, 
Yeah, it could be like bigger ants. Like huge ants. Huge ants. And like, like the ants in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Exactly. Maybe Angie is in a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids world that we don't know about because it's so small and their ants are gigantic. And of course, she's terrified about an anthill at work. Yeah. But then the rest of the question seems to be certain that she's larger than the ants. The mental health care facility is larger mm-hmm. than the anthill, etc. So- I I guess, Angie, I would ask you to go back to childhood and really consult with yourself. Did the ants eat your clothes or were they on your clothes? But then what happened to the clothes? Did the clothes disappear? That's what I'm wondering. Did they consume the clothes and your clothes were gone? And if so, like, I think you should be scared. (laughs) I think fear is correct. I don't want to make it worse, but like, I'm scared now that I know that that's a thing that ants can do. Yeah, I mean, I knew that, like, moths are aforementioned animals, creatures. of course. Um, Yes, they eat through clothes because they don't know why. That's the whole problem. Because it's in the way of the light. (laughs) (laughs) Because it stands between them and the light, and they need to fly to the light because they don't know why. But ants, ostensibly, are underground creatures that, like surface. Yes. So that's what I would think is that you don't actually have an ant hill at work. You have mm. something much worse, which is that you have an <laughs> ant hill below work. <laughs> that's, oh, no. That's like coming up into the room. So I absolutely 100% think that you should talk to your bosses about this. And I think you can even say like, listen, we work in a mental health facility. One, I don't think we should have an anthill inside, <laughs> inside the mental health facility, which I think is everyone would agree on. Fair enough. And, you make a good point. <laughs> and so I think it's worth bringing up to your bosses just because, like, it's not ideal. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, I think you can say, like, also, P.S., I have a big fear of ants, and I just don't love being in an indoor situation with ants. And I don't think that's asking too much of the world. I think I think those are very reasonable expectations. Um, I think that there is no reason you should have an anthill in your office at work. Absolutely. So I, I think that's a very... Um, good basis. I always think if you go for like a health and safety, mm-hmm. I'm just looking out for everyone else's mm-hmm. benefit. Mm-hmm. That can also help put yourself on on really solid uh, footing. You just feel a bit firmer because mm-hmm. you're, you're sticking to policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you need to work from home forever because I am worried that the ants might find you there as well. Yeah. It does seem like they Keep have... Keep them a, at work. Yeah, it seems like they have a bit of a vendetta. I'm just saying yeah. I don't want to encourage your phobia. Yes, but keep um, them at work. But keep them at work because that way you can come home and still have a place of rest. Right, um, right. And you can keep a certain distance from the ants yeah. day to day. I mean, the truth is the ants are in that corner. You're where you are. They don't want to be where you are and you don't want to be where they are. And that's good. But I understand your concern. This is this gets at something that is really important to me, which is that I am happy to seed all of outside Mm -hmm. to the to the mice and the chipmunks and the raccoons and the coyotes. They they can have all of outside. Yeah. All I want is inside. The problem comes when you realize that there is no such thing as inside. They don't know about inside. And I've tried to, actually, I had a conversation with a squirrel recently because (laughs) there's a squirrel uh, that that lives near our house that, unlike every other squirrel I've ever encountered in my life, likes to chew on the the limestone uh, step. What? On our front front porch. He just likes to chew on it. Is it teething? 
it's like it's teething, but it's been doing this for years, so wow. it doesn't have distemper or anything. We've been told this is a normal-ish behavior. <laughs> but I tried to have a conversation with the squirrel where I was like, look, this is right on the edge of inside outside, yeah. right? Like you're on you're in built you're in a built world. You're in the borderlands. As you're it in were. the borderlands once you are munching on my front step. Yeah. And I'm okay with us both occupying the borderlands. Right. But I have a very strict border policy. Oh, God. And if you come in through the front door, that is a space that I call inside that you don't know about. And I know you don't know about it, but I'm trying Mm. to tell you about it now. And once you enter into that space, all bets are off. All bets are off. That does remind me of the time we were on tour for Tales All the Way Down and a squirrel came inside my hotel room. (laughs) Um, in Missoula, of all places, actually. Oh, my God. All bets are off. All bets are off. It was climbing on the screen, and then it wasn't climbing on the screen, and it was running around my hotel room, and I didn't really know what to do about that. I had a bird come into my hotel room recently, and it was a really intense conversation because, again, I'm a very, I'm a word-based person. Yeah. And so when I'm talking to a non-human animal, I try to keep it to words. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't going to run after it or try to catch it. That's terrifying. <laughs> so I was like, listen, I need you to leave. And it was like flying around. And I was like, did you not understand me? Do you have a counter argument? Like, how are we going to settle this? Mm. It was very stressful. Um, and then finally Sarah came out uh, and she she like flapped her, you know. Bird wings. Bird wings. And, and mm. the bird was like, oh, I'm super intimidated and left. So, so what you're saying is Sarah is the giant woodpecker. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Indeed. Sarah's the giant woodpecker, which reminds me, actually, that today's podcast is brought to you by my wife, the giant woodpecker, um, who has found a way to exist as a bird inside of our home. I always knew she was impressive. This podcast is also brought to you by the moth's tiny teeth. The moth's tiny teeth. That's just so little. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's an unusual moth. In a bunch of in a bunch of respects, uh, today's podcast is also brought to you, of course, by Kelsey's bedroom. Kelsey's bedroom—it's where Amanda sets all the novels she reads. <laughs> and this podcast is also brought to you by the squirrel eating John's front step. The squirrel <laughs> eating John's front step. What is it with these guys' teeth? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we also have a project for awesome message uh, from Luke in New Zealand to Brawny. Love is not just looking at each other, it's looking in the same direction. Thank you for sharing all your passions with me and introducing me to wonderful communities like this one. You make my life so much better by being in it, and I look forward to many more years together filled with bizarre beasts, broom-based sports, and dubious advice podcasts. I love you so much. Oh, that's very sweet. It's very lovely. Thank you for donating the Project for Awesome, Luke. And for sharing your love for Brawny with us, it made us happy. It did. We were happy on a Monday, which is always a feat. <laughs> yeah. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials. 
credentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep, it's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Chobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt. I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, There will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year. For $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Rosian, I've got a, I've got an etiquette question for you, and sure. we are etiquette experts, so it makes sense that somebody would ask it. It's from Mariah, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm invited to a wedding later this year for one of my college roommates. We're 24. We graduated two years ago, but we still talk occasionally. Mm-hmm. When I was going to RSVP, I had a plus one, but now I'm not currently dating anyone, and my old roommate knows that I'm not dating anyone, and that I'm not likely to start dating anyone. Am I allowed to bring a friend as my plus one? Why do I feel like I'm breaking a rule or being rude, dubious advice appreciated, scared of commitment and long-term relationships, Mariah. Well, it's interesting. So I'm guessing that your invitation has a plus one attached to it. I think you get to bring who you want. Yeah. But I also think that both for the sake of um, just like your comfort and also so people don't start declaring this person your life partner, it might be good to give your friend a heads up and say, hey, I'm planning on bringing yeah. so-and-so friend with me. But I don't think feel feeling you don't need to feel bad about it or anything or feel like it's the you're breaking a rule um, because I think you get to bring who you want if you get a plus one. Yeah, that's sort of how I feel too. Like it's a little weird that we say plus ones only for this particular 
kind of relationship. Yeah. Only if it's romantic. Well, what if it's romantic and new versus like a friend life partner? Yeah. It's very, it's, it's a weird thing in general. So I think if you got the plus one, you can can go. I think, though, for the record, I also think you should feel free to go alone. It's oh, not yeah. a requirement to bring a plus one. And sometimes, I, I mean, I've been to weddings alone and I've been to weddings with friends and um, or and I've been to weddings with 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 a partner, obviously, or with a plus one. But but sometimes going to a weddings alone is like super fun. That's a really good point, because I actually have only gone to weddings alone. Like and often they've been mm. weddings where I know some people there, but sometimes they haven't been, especially lately when it's been friends from uh, school who've got married um, and I don't know any of their friends since, you know, maybe like 18 or something. And it's actually been really nice to get to know the people in their life and to sort of find out, you know, all the different connections that they've made over their life and um, who they're getting married to and find a bit more about them. Um, so I, yeah, I would really encourage you also to go alone if you feel comfortable, but also if you'd prefer to have a friend there, that's totally fine. I think that's totally allowed. It is strange that we privilege this one kind of relationship. Um, and I also always find it like a bit, I get a bit stressed internally. Like this isn't coming from a place of full self-actualization. I get a bit stressed internally sometimes when I get a plus one on my invite and I'm like, is there going to be a plus one? Do I want that to be a plus one? Mm, yeah. And it just throws out this big existential question when yeah. actually the focus of the invitation should be like, oh, my friend's having this event, whether it's a wedding or a party or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I would like to be there. Right. And as a person who has thrown uh, such parties, I can tell you for an absolute fact that they are happy if you don't bring a plus one. <laughs> Well, yeah, they the... will not be bummed out about saving that two hundred seventy five dollars. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe anyway. Weddings. Weddings are very expensive, feet. but also other, you know, increasingly other things that you do are very expensive, like 30th birthday parties can be very expensive. So it's all about it's what true. it's it's all about what you want, what's going to make it so that you have a nice evening. This reminds me of my complete failure to commit to a bit, which is that. You remember, like, there was, like, three weeks in May, June 2021 Mm -hmm. when it was going to be hot girl summer. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Yeah. And everybody was like, it's a hot girl summer. We're going to go crazy. July 4th is going to be... July 4th, by the way, is America's Independence Day. Oh, it's when you threw away all that tea. That's right. (laughs) Well, so anyway, everybody was like, on July 4th is going to be a big party. We're all going to go crazy. Life's going to be amazing. Everybody's going to be on the beach. (laughs) It's, you know... uh, uh, bikinis and 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 boys and and Red Bulls and vodkas. Yeah. And during this period, I was also feeling very much like my life was going to open up and it's going to be amazing. It's going to feel so good. And so on this very podcast, I said, if you're getting married and you're going to have an open bar, I will be there. And I got so many lovely wedding invitations and I have attended zero of those weddings. I, I, I bought a couple gifts, but I attended zero weddings. I feel very bad. But what I found out about myself is that when I close my eyes and imagine what it would be like to go to a wedding where I don't know anyone. I close my eyes and picture me as a different person <laughs> from who I actually am. It's like the opposite of the question about reading a book. Yes. You like literally just abandon yourself entirely. I imagine the me who I wish to be, the yeah. me who I think of myself as. And then when I get the invitation, I'm like, oh no, I'm I'm the real me. 
And the real me uh, finds that prospect very stressful. Oh, I'm intrigued by this. Like, what what else does this imaginary you do? Oh, he's so funny. He's so <laughs> clever. Um, he's very, uh, he's a little bit like a character in a noir mystery novel. Lots of clipped oh. dialogue. He never says two words when he could say one. <laughs> Just like me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see what the problem is here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He loves to go to a casino, um, but he always comes out even, you know? I do that. Do you? Yeah, I came out. Actually, I came out up. I, when I was in Vegas, I played the Casino Royale slots. Oh, sure. The James Bond one. The James Bond one. Yeah. And I, uh, it's known for its great odds. <laughs> I won. I won $70. Did you really? Thanks to a face full of Judy Dench's M's. Oh. And, I, and I was like, here we go. I'm, I'm, I'm cashing out. <laughs> oh, wait. So let me get this straight. <laughs> you got a face full of Judy Dench. Yeah. And then you got $69. Yeah. And then you left the casino? Well, I had to go get back in the queue for the killers. So it was a very mm, brief, mm. it was a very brief thing. So let, me, I, tell you, I, let I, me tell you my casino strategy and you tell me if you, whether you like it or don't like it. Okay. I see, I get all those Judy Dentures. I win my $69 and then I feel really good mm. and really confident. And I go to the roulette table. Oh no. And then I lose all my money. So yeah. that's how I do it every time. I walk into a casino with $100 and I tell myself, it does not matter how much money I make tonight. I'm going to lose it all. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. <laughs> well, that's why, that's why, that's, that's why I keep it. That's why I don't go it's very often. Time. I don't go much. Oh, man. But that person, that person who walks in the casino, that's the only time I feel like the person who would say yes to those oh. wedding invitations. Because I'm wearing a suit. I'm often wearing glasses that I never wear in real life. Right. I have my hair styled. You're ready have, to go. I've invented a backstory. A oh, lot of times Sarah and yeah. I will invent a full backstory. Yeah. And then I'll live out the backstory at the blackjack table. Like somebody, somebody will say like, where you're from, where you're from. And I'll be like, Montreal. We. <laughs> oui. <laughs> and if you want to hear more about that, you can uh, read the Anthropocene Review <laughs> to pay for all the bookstores now. I talk about it in the Bonneville Salt Flats episode. Um, yeah. But actually, I will say that my other my other very tiny but great fun casino strategy is that once you cash out, often they can only give you now the money in bills and they don't give you any coins. Mm. And so then you take the voucher of the 70 cents, whatever you have left, find somewhere that will let you use that voucher. And then that's free play. You can play with that as much as you want. That's seventy cents. That's seventy cents. But listen, <laughs> you can do whatever you want with it. You can, you can, go, you can win a fair amount. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I like that. <laughs> so that's I'm like what, what you do with the seventy cents is what I do with all the money. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming to our gambling podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All the other gambling podcasts are like, here's how to secretly beat the casinos. No, my gambling podcast is about here. Here's how to lose every single time. <laughs> and mine says how to bet 70 cents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. I'm going to ask this last question from Parker. He says, dear John and Hank, right now I have a job that I don't particularly like. It's a serving job and I only make $3 an hour. I can make more money if I give the table a good experience and they tip me. But I find it hard to keep track of multiple tables and can get overwhelmed. So things often go wrong. And then I make a very small amount of money. My question is, how do you know if a job just isn't right for you or if it just hasn't clicked yet? Lame wages and labor, Parker. Well, I was a very bad server, Parker. 
Uh, for, for exactly the reasons that you cite, if I had more than two tables, I just got overwhelmed so quickly. And right now, especially because a lot of restaurants have fewer servers than they should have, because partly because they're paying $3 an hour plus tips, it's it's even harder. And so you have a lot of tables, you're learning on the job. It sounds like you haven't had a ton of experience yet as a server and it's really hard work. Like I get so frustrated every time somebody describes jobs like that as low skill labor, oh. because if you've ever done the job, it is not low skill. It takes a long time to learn. It takes a long time to be really good at. And I certainly never got to the point where I was even competent. And so for me, it's about y- y- you being able to say to yourself like, well, is this in line with my skill sets or is this in line with something that I'm interested in or, or, or want to work to get better at? And, and can I get better at it? Because if you can, then yes, like stay, stay in that job and see if you can get better at it. But for me, like what I had to learn was that I just like, I was never going to be good at it Mm. just because of the nature of my, the way my brain works. It was always going to be a struggle for me to keep all that stuff organized because I just don't have a well-organized brain. Yeah, it's really difficult. Like I remember I did a lot of like, uh, what they call it, like catering, like catering events when I was um, a teenager and that I found that really challenging. And there were also all these expectations about even just like which side you're supposed to put the plate down and the cutlery and all these like internal rules that I found quite overwhelming. I think you're really right to point out that like there, there is so much devaluation in calling jobs like that unskilled because there are so many skills in it. And I wonder if that's a place to begin if you do uh, feel you need to stay in that particular job for a bit longer is just by saying, look, I don't ha- I don't know or have the skills yet to do this, but that's a place I can grow. And I sometimes find that being honest with myself about skills I don't have or things I haven't learned fully yet mm-hmm. actually gives me permission to be a little bit bad at it at first. And then I find that gives myself the grace to like get a bit better, gives me the grace to get a bit better at it and, mm-hmm. and learn from it rather than expecting myself to be at 100% working alongside someone who's been uh, waitressing for like two years or three years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also the other thing is like there there might be, I don't know where you work, there might be other roles available within that space that you might yeah. find more comfortable. Um, so if you are able, if you'd like to stay in that job just for like the security of it, but you don't necessarily want to keep serving tables, then you would see whether there's another position, whether it's like as a host or as uh, behind the scenes in the kitchen or like something else, um, because that might be a way of figuring out what it is you do and don't like about work. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, I nearly exploded a keg once. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard. It's really Restaur- hard. Restaurant jobs are really hard. Food service uh, jobs are just... It's the hours can be really grueling. At least they were for me, and the work can be really hard. Um, there's a lot of camaraderie. I mean, in a in a good restaurant environment uh, for me anyway. Like I experienced a lot of really positive camaraderie. Yeah, and really enjoyed working with the people I worked with, and and had that sense of uh, kind of we're in it togetherness that I really like in work. But the work itself was difficult, and I think right now, honestly, I, I mean. Just in the few times I've been to a sit-down restaurant in the last few months, a lot of customers are are, are jerks, are yeah. mean. Um, and I, I think, I don't know what exactly what's going on, but th- there's a lot of sort of t- 
tension boiling just under the surface and people really quick to frustration. And that's also really difficult when you're A, you're learning a job, B, you're, you're probably understaffed and C, like, like you said, Parker, you're getting paid $3 an hour plus tips. So yeah. really tips should not be optional if you're getting paid $3 an hour plus tips. Like tips shouldn't be for good service. They should be for uh, what amounts to a, a barely living wage. Um, and then there should be a tip on top of that for good service. So it's it's tough. That's a, that's just a tough industry. And I hope that um, it gets better for you either because you find new work or because you find a groove inside the, the job that you're in now. Yeah, that's, a, that's another really good point. It's like it shouldn't be set up this way for you. Like you, you know, it is a form of wage theft, really. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry that you're finding it difficult on top of um, it not being paid very well at all. So, yeah. 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 So good luck. Um, and and the, those of us who are not currently servers, the next time you're at a restaurant, remember Parker's question. And how Parker is struggling with that with that work. All right, we're going to move on to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Oh God, <laughs> I'll start. Yeah. So Wimbledon over the weekend played the worst team in League One, already relegated crew, and we lost. We had a lead in that game of one nil, which is the eleventh time we've led a game. In the 24 games we've gone without winning, mm-hmm. uh, Rosiana's been to a few of these games, so maybe she can give us the bird's eye view. Oh, it's just been crushing, really. Um, it's been it's been difficult to sort of watch these matches just on just on edge the whole time, and yeah. just wanting them to win so much. Yeah, everyone in that stadium, like the ma- the stadium's still full. Yeah, you just want them to win so much. But. And the players, I think, feel the pressure and yeah. and have struggled to respond to it in a positive way. So now, without manager Mark Robinson, without uh, a single win in their last twenty four games, uh, it looks very now almost certain that Wimbledon will be relegated. Just today, as we're recording this, Wimbledon played Wickham, uh, where the longtime fans of the podcast may remember that when AFC Wimbledon were a fourth-tier English soccer team, the once-in-future fourth-tier English soccer team, (laughs) you may remember that um, Adebayo Fenwa, the largest and strongest person in professional football, was one of our star strikers the season that we were promoted via the playoffs. Well, Adebayo Fenwa now plays for Wickham. Uh, he went all the way up to the championship, the second tier of English football, but then Wickham got relegated and he ended up back in League One. And uh, today he scored a tying goal against AFC Wimbledon. Again, they had the lead, the mm. 12th time out of the 25 games we've gone without winning. And again, they surrendered the lead via an Adebayo Fenwa goal, which may have been the goal that finally did... Um, put the hope to rest. There is still a mathematical possibility that Wimbledon will win their last two games and um, escape relegation. But again, we haven't won a game in 2022, so I don't don't know that that's likely. Uh, but hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. So until it is mathematically confirmed 
we will cling to hope. Who are we facing next? Who are our last two matches? So our next game is against Fleetwood, who are Mm. in 21st right now and also likely to be relegated. Uh, So, you know, that's obviously to say that's a must win game would be an understatement because they're both must win games. And then our final game is against Accrington Stanley. Oh, that was my dad's team when he was a kid. Oh, wow. Because he was called Stanley. So he was like, oh, yeah, I know who I'm going for. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Stanley this year has had an okay season. They're middle of the pack in League One. Uh, they are one of the teams that we're kind of closest to emotionally. Like, yeah. like people often like the the. Fa- I, I think it's tradition that the owner of Accrington Stanley always buys the traveling Wimbledon fans a beer yeah. when they uh, go to the game. So um, maybe they could do us a favor on the final day <laughs> and just like sit down just on the pitch. Be- yeah, just like put all their twelve-year-olds <laughs> out and see if we could beat them. Oh man, I really uh, yeah. I would just keep crossing my fingers um but i i do i do think that regardless and knowing it's been such a long uh difficult run this year it has been really amazing to see the stadium still full and it has been really amazing to hear people still singing the songs and like you know it's it's been tough to watch but like the that's as much as winning would be the best <laughs> um it also is the fact that the club exists and is there and the stadium exists and is there that still brings me a lot of hope yeah i mean it's uh it's it's our stadium we own it it's our club we own it and there has to be some hope in that it's a lot of frustration among fans right now and i and i get it i'm sympathetic to it it's it i can't even imagine watching 25 straight football matches and seeing your team not win one of them but i I really believe that fan ownership is the future for Wimbledon, mm-hmm. and I think it needs to be. I think that's what makes the club special, but I also think that's how to make sure that what happened never happens again is by keeping ownership in the hands of the fans, even if that means, frankly, that like you know the, the club can't have the kind of investment that other uh, English clubs do right now in this huge money rush that uh, mm-hmm. that English football is experiencing. So. And, yeah, it's tough. And we're seeing that we're seeing how fraught that side of it is too. Like I know that seems permanent and um, unmovable, but that that billionaire side of it has its yep. huge downsides. And yep. I think that the you know what is it? The chickens are coming home to roost. Is that the expression? Some of the chickens are starting to come home to roost. Uh, certainly, the Russian oligarch chickens. A couple of the chickens are not, are on their way home. Yes, um, but they're. Yeah, and and you're right. Like the the arc of history is long. If you think about what football looked like 30 years ago, it's mm-hmm. very different from what it looks like today, and it'll look very different in 30 years. And I think if Wimbledon are still fan owned, they will be on the right path. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's enough supporters. Uh, there are enough season ticket holders. The stadium is big enough and beautiful enough to support a professional football team. And so hopefully if we get relegated, we will be able to recover, regroup, have a competitive budget and stabilize. Yeah. What's the news from Mars, Rosiana? Well, in the news from Mars, I just wanted to highlight this really incredible picture that NASA took of uh, what they've called Aereo, which is the uh, prime meridian on Mars. Oh. Um, So it doesn't have a natural prime meridian. It is one that was chosen by scientists, I believe, in order to just be able to describe things in very earthling terms of east and west Mm -hmm. and north and just kind of... um, 
navigate in general and 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 give coordinates but they they've taken this incredible picture of um zero degrees longitude um of this amazing crater that looks itself like something of an alien i think it does and it's uh it's it's sort of creepy and wonderful in equal measure um any fans of dune i think will definitely yeah it looks (laughs) like a large creature like it looks almost like a sponge or a sandworm a a sandworm yeah but like the the large back of a sandworm or something. It's really quite beautiful and and strange. I always, when I look at images of of Mars, I always, the adjective that comes to mind is always otherworldly, which of course it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, exactly. It is that. And it it makes me also, the other uh, story it makes me think a lot of is Annihilation Mm. um, and the film adaptation of that, which did such a brilliant job of sort of blending Mm -hmm. things that are very familiar with things that are very unfamiliar and like the original kind of, definition of the uncanny and that's what this picture reminds me on but um what was really interesting was when they were explaining this nasa said that uh the larger crater that sits within this crater called the airy crater originally defined zero longitude for mars but as higher resolution photos became available a smaller feature was needed this crater called aereo zero was selected because it did not need to adjust existing maps mm. which i thought was such an interesting interaction between mm. technology mm-hmm. and mapping and reminds of us of a, a sort of ongoing theme i think in all our work of um about maps and cartography and how human they are and yeah, how human the, made they are the world uh, obviously shapes the maps but that is a reminder that the map also shapes the world because the map had already been made they had yeah. to find part of the world that would make that map make sense. Yeah. That's beautiful. Even off-world. Right. Even on other worlds, we yeah. still have to have this complicated relationship between the place and the map. Oh, that's a lovely way to end, Rosiana. Thank you for bringing some metaphorical resonance to the news from Mars, which I feel like <laughs> not everybody does. And thank you so much for potting with me. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. It's so nice to see you again. <laughs> it's nice to see you too. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tunamedish. It's produced by our very own Rosiana Hulse Rojas. <laughs> our head of community and communications is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Debokri Chakravarti. The music that you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, be awesome. awesome.